join me in 2 Samuel 11 this evening as we continue our study through the life of David, coming to perhaps one of the most well-known episodes of David's life, unfortunately. 2 Samuel 11. And let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this evening truly we do rejoice in your mercy. Your mercy that scripture tells us is new every morning. Because Lord, even as we just confessed in that song, our sins are many. Lord, we know our hearts. And the more we consider our sin, the more we are led to cry out like Paul, Oh, wretched man that I am! Who can save me? What hope is there for one like me? Then the gospel turns our eyes to the cross. We see Jesus Christ who died. And even when I was yet a sinner, Christ died for me. Therefore, though my sins are many, Lord, your mercy is more. We rejoice in that hope this evening because, Lord, without your mercy, there would be no hope for us. Even as we turn our attention to 2 Samuel 11 and and we see seemingly the the depths of depravity, as even a, a man of God, someone that we would look up to in Scripture, one of our heroes, and yet we see the wickedness of his heart. Yet, Lord, may it not stop there. But may your spirit through this passage open our eyes to the wickedness of our hearts. May we see our sin. May we just in general see the devastation of sin. And may that, Lord, drive us to the cross, drive us to repentance this evening. Do a work in us for your glory. We pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. As we work our way through this passage this evening, and and, and I don't have any kind of fancy introduction, we're just going to jump right into the passage because we have a lot of verses to get through. And uh, then we have the privilege at the end this evening of coming to the Lord's table together. So we're going to jump right into our passage this evening, and as we work our way through this passage, I've got four points that we're going to work our way through. The context, verse 1. The crime, verses 2 to 5. The cover-up, verses 6 to 25. And the consequence, verses 26 to 27. I know that Pastor Johnson will be happy with my alliteration there. <laughs> thought of you. The context, the crime, the cover-up, and the consequence. As we come to 2 Samuel 11, verse 1, here we are given the context. And if you remember where we were last week, in 2 Samuel 10, it really takes a surprising turn. You remember at the beginning of the chapter, as the king of Ammon has died and and his son now has risen to the throne, and so David sends 
A group of, of men, counselors, to go and to, to comfort him and to assure him that the, the covenant I had, the promise I had with your father, it still stands. I will be faithful to my word. And yet, you'll remember as he goes there, he's there betrayed. And this leads to war with Ammon, and eventually Syria is dragged into this as well. And by the grace of God, through his strength and, and power, they, they, defeat, they defeat Syria. And by the time you come to verse 19, when all the kings were servants of Hadadazar, the, the king of Syria, saw that they were defeated by Israel, they made peace with Israel and served them. So the Syrians were afraid to help the people of Ammon anymore. So now the Ammonites are standing alone, but they haven't given up. So now we come to verse 1. It is in this context, in the midst of war with the Ammonites, that it happened in the spring of the year, at the time when kings go out to battle, that David sent Joab and his servants with him, and all Israel, and they destroyed the people of Ammon and besieged Rabbah. The spring of the year, the time when the kings go out to battle, it just makes sense when you think through the year, the springtime, the, the bad weather has passed through. Now there's good weather. Not only is there good weather, but with spring comes food, abundant food along the way to provide for an army. Now is the time to go out. Now is the time to conquer. So they go out, but you'll notice a key word here in verse 1. In fact, this is a key word in this chapter that will show up time and time and time again. That David led Joab and his servants to battle. Is that what it says? He sent. He sends the army out. You may say, well, what's, what's the big deal with that? Why does David have to go? I don't necessarily know. The chapter doesn't tell us. But the author does want us to pick up on that detail because he highlights it then again at the end of the chapter, or at the end of the verse. He wants us to pick up on the fact that David has not gone to war with his soldiers, and he should have. Because they've gone. They've destroyed the people of Ammon. They've had a, a great victory. The Ammonites are overmatched. Things are going well. But, the end of verse 1, David remained at Jerusalem. That but there, it's written in such a way to draw attention to the fact that David chose to stay behind. He is not where he should be. He is in the wrong place. And, and I don't know why. I don't know if he's just lazy. I don't know if it's indifference. I don't know what it is that led to this decision. But whatever it is, the author here is highlighting the fact that he made the wrong decision. That he should have gone out to battle. Two times in one verse he highlights that. In fact, that's one of the key things that we'll see in the development of this story. You'll note that, that David's fall into sin does not begin in the bedroom. It begins on the rooftop when he should have been in the battlefield. So we see the context. For whatever reason, David is not where he should be. As you come to verse 2 now, you'll note the crime. And again, note the verbs as we work our way through this. You'll see that David saw, he inquired, he sent, he took, and she came to him, then he lay with her, and she returned to her house. 
It happened while David was not where he should be. He arose from his bed. He walked on the roof of the king's house. He goes out for a stroll. And from the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was beautiful to behold. Now the story should stop there. He saw a woman bathing. He ran downstairs. He locked the door. He realized he should be at battle, so he got in his chariot and he went and he joined the battle. That's not the way that it ends, though. He saw her. He sees that she is beautiful to behold. He desires her. Here we see that key word again. So David sent. He sent and he inquired about the woman. He's curious. You'll note here that David is not a victim of circumstance. The problem is not that David was just in the wrong place at the wrong time. It's not just that David faced temptation from without. The problem is inside of David. The problem is the fact that he is a sinner. You see that even here because right from the beginning, someone speaks up almost as if it's David's conscience saying, this is someone's wife. We're not told who, but, but someone said, is this not Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? This is someone's wife. And right from the very beginning, the author wants us to be aware that David knows this. This is not a surprise that he finds out later. In fact, one of the things you'll note as you work your way through this, this chapter is that there are details all throughout here that the author puts in there so that we know that, that, this, that there's no mistake here. This is not just a moment where we're, of, of the indiscretion. This is not, you know, well, it could have been something. It's very clear here what is going on. You see that right from, from the very beginning, David is aware who this is, and he is aware of her status. She is married. She's the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Again, David sent. Not only has he sent to inquire, and having inquired, he's found out who she is, but now, that has not driven him away. Now, he sends messengers to go and to get her. And she comes to him. And he lay with her. And this is a key part right here. For she was cleansed from her impurity. That's another one of those clues. Because you know what that tells us? That tells us that she was not pregnant prior to this. Cleansed from her impurity is likely a reference to the fact that her time of the month was over. She had gone through the, the process to be cleansed, to be able to re-enter into society. She was not pregnant prior to this. This is not something where there's been a slip up and, and well, maybe she was pregnant before. I don't, I don't know. No, the passage is very clear. She wasn't. So she returned to her house. And the woman conceived. So she sent and told David and said, I am with child. You'll note there, again, another clue here. Verse 5, the woman conceived. In fact, not one more time throughout the rest of this chapter is her name Bathsheba used. And again, I think that's purposeful. 
the author is helping us to see Bathsheba in the way that David sees her and is treating her. He's not seeing her as a sister. He's not seeing her as a, a, a woman underneath his rule. He's not seeing her as, as someone who's an individual who has a family. He's seeing her as someone who can meet his needs. To him, she is faceless. To him, she is merely the woman. You see that throughout the rest of the chapter. So here we find the crime. David, premeditated, fully aware of the circumstances, chose to lay with the wife of another man. And now that he finds out that she has conceived, now he has to do something about it. That's where we come in verses 6 to 25 to the cover-up. The cover-up, verses 6 to 25. Finding out that she is with child, David sends Joab. One of the other things that you'll note as you work your way through this chapter is that David, throughout the course of this, as he's seeking to cover up his sin, you'll, you'll note the slippery slope as it moves from one to the, uh, to the next, and it gets worse and worse and worse. But along the way, he's pulling other people into this as well. Joab, the same one who just a chapter earlier, in chapter 10, verse 12, so boldly proclaimed... The sovereign power and rule of God submitting himself in the army saying God will do what is best. Even in a situation when they're surrounded by the enemy, he rallies the troops. He turns their eyes up to God says, our God is great. We can do this. Let's go. Let's trust him. And here one chapter later, the same man was pulled down, drawn into David's sin with him. At this point, I don't know if he knows what's going on or not. But later on in the chapter, he has a pretty good idea of what's going on, we know. At this point, all, he, all we see is, send me Uriah the Hittite. So Joab, likely unbeknownst of what's going on, sends Uriah to David. Uriah comes to him. Again, the word send. Joab sent Uriah. David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and how the war prospered. Again, just another one of those little clues here. It's almost as if the, the, the author's kind of putting us in, in David's headspace. I don't know if you've ever been in a situation where <clears throat> you're talking to someone and maybe you know that you have a, a similar experience. And so, you know, maybe you, you start out with something and they're telling you a little bit about their day, but you're not really interested in that, so you're not really listening to their answer. And then as soon as the opportunity... But, Hey, what about this? You know, you're excited to get the next thing. That's a little bit of what's going on here. I mean, David, he, Uriah comes with a report about how the war is going. What is happening? This is key information that David needs to know, and yet is limited to one verse. There's no detail here, because that's not what David's really interested in. So he's really half-heartedly, he's not interested in this stuff. He's ready to move on to what matters to him. So he jumps right into it in verse 8. He said to Uriah, go, go down to your house, wash your feet. So Uriah departed from the king's house 
and the gifts of food from the king followed him. Go to your house. Wash your feet. Take the night off. In fact, this idea of washing your feet is likely a statement full of innuendo. Go home, clean up, and enjoy your wife. In fact, David doesn't send him empty-handed. He sends food from the king. Gifts intended to help Uriah and Bathsheba enjoy the evening. You can almost think of like a honeymoon suite at a hotel where they've got rose petals and fancy fruit and all kinds of stuff. Go, enjoy the evening. But... Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his lord. You see, Uriah understands that he is a soldier who is on duty. He's here on mission to bring a report to the king. He doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes. As far as he knows, he's been sent by Job to give a report. I am here on duty. He's not going to take a break. He's not going to do anything because he is here to perform a task and to get back. So he doesn't go to his house. Verse 10, so when they, we're not told who these faceless people are, the the someone from verse 3 or the they here, but once again, just all these other people that are drawn into David's sin. They told David, Uriah did not go down to his house. And David sent Uriah, did you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? In verse 11, perhaps the the central point of this whole story, the, the starkest contrast possible. Uriah said to David, the ark and Israel and Judah are dwelling in tents. My Lord Job and the servants of my Lord are encamped in the open fields. Shall I then go to my house and eat and drink and to lie with my wife as you live and as my soul lives, as your soul lives? I will not do this thing. Uriah's answer is essentially, I am on duty. There is a war going on. My brothers are out there dying. Israel and Judah, the whole nation, but me. And you. <coughs> They're dwelling in tents. In fact, interestingly, note that he starts with the ark. You know what's really interesting about that? Is that a couple of chapters ago, that was David's primary concern. That same thing. The ark is dwelling in a tent while I dwell in this massive house. And now look at David dwelling in his house, enjoying his riches, while the ark is out with the army dwelling in a tent. In fact, that's one of the things that you'll note about sin, even in your own life. How sin completely controls and reorders your desires. What was so important to David at one point now is is, is meaningless. It's a back burner. It's something he doesn't even care about because he's so focused on this predicament that he's gotten himself in. You can't help but see the stark contrast between righteous Uriah and unrighteous David here. Uriah is burning to get back out with his brothers in arms while David is perfectly fine staying behind in his house, eating and drinking 
and laying with Uriah's wife the very thing that Uriah won't do. Now David finds himself in a predicament. Because if Uriah won't go lay with his wife, then everyone's going to know something has happened. So David sent to Uriah, wait here today, and tomorrow I will let you depart. So he stays another day. And note this again, David called him, and he ate and drank before him, and he made him drunk. Don't overlook that, the, 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 the lengths to which David is willing to go. Don't excuse the sin of drunkenness here. Just look at the progression that we see from being in the wrong place to lust, to then adultery, to then this conniving and this lying, now to drunkenness. beginning of this cover-up, things are stacking on each other over more and more and more. Sin is a slippery slope. But, though David's done everything he can, though David has made him drunk, even a drunk Uriah is more honorable than David. He did not go down to his house. As you get to verse 14, this really ratchets up a level now. Because now things are spiraling out of control and David has no control over the issue, over the situation. This could ruin him. So he does the most drastic thing. In fact, not only do we see here that David is conniving, he is cruel. What we find here is no accident. This is premeditated murder. In the morning it happened that David wrote a letter to Job and he sent it by the hand of Uriah. Uriah is carrying his own death sentence. How cruel can David be? In fact, you can almost sense the frustration, the hatred in David. Know what the note says. Verse 15, set Uriah in the forefront of the hottest battle and retreat from him that he may be struck down and die. It's almost as if David, just full of rage and frustration, is saying, you know what, Uriah? You want to be a good soldier? I'll show you how to be a good soldier. You want to be faithful? You want to get back out there? I'll put you back out there. I think we see something else about Uriah here. I think not only do we see that he's a righteous man, but he's, he, he's an honest man. Even as David is conniving in his cruelty, he trusts Uriah to take this letter and not to read it. If Uriah opens this, everything blows up. But that's the kind of man Uriah is, and the kind of man David knows him to be, and yet still David goes forward with this. Now we see in this continued progression downward from being in the wrong place at the wrong time to lust, to adultery, to lies, to drunkenness, and now to murder. Now 
At this point, there is no more excuse for Joab. Joab knows what's going on. He's got a direct order to put this guy in danger so that he dies. Joab is now a co-conspirator with David in this. By David's hand, forced to do this. You know, I don't think we should remove the guilt from him. While Joab besieged the city that he assigned Uriah to a place where he knew there would be valiant men. He knew that this is where the best and the bravest soldiers were. This is truly where the hottest fighting is going to be. And Uriah, like a faithful soldier, goes into the battle. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab. And some of the people, the servants of David, fell. And Uriah the Hittite died also. Again, I don't know if you've ever noticed this or not, but Uriah is not the only casualty of David's cruelty. Do you know what it says there? Some of the people of the servants of David fell. David's lust, David's lies, David's desire to cover his sin, his selfishness has now cost several families in Israel dearly, not just Uriah. There are other families whose now father and husband is not coming home. Because of the decisions that David made. In fact, one of the things you'll see in verse 18 and following is that Joab is not just a co-conspirator with David, but in doing this with David and partaking this and obeying David here, he really, he's put his, his whole people's view of him, his reputation as a commander on the line in order to, to follow David's command and to protect David's secret, Job has sacrificed his own reputation as a commander making a rookie tactical mistake that's the whole point of verses 18 and following as, David, as he writes back to David and he sends this messenger, go and tell him this He's expecting David to be angry because this is a rookie mistake. You know better than to go close to the line. <clears throat> Don't you remember the story from Judges 9 when Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth, got so close that a woman just dropped a, a rock on him and it killed him? You know that story. Everyone knows that story. This is a rookie mistake. How could you do this? But after you tell him, tell him that Uriah died also. So he comes and he, he delivers the message to David. And he ends with, and your servant Uriah the Hittite died also. And the reality is that at this point, if David were a good leader, he should be furious. Because the deaths of these men was needless. This was a poor tactical decision, a rookie mistake. And yet instead, he is pleased because it helps to cover his sin. Instead of blowing up at the messenger, he says, well, you know, people die in battle. Don't be too upset. That's the way it goes. There's a shocking coldness, a seeming lack of remorse here in David. How can a man who has done such great things, how can he do something so wicked and cold? 
Something so heartless. That's where we come to the consequence. 2 Samuel 11, 26 to 27. And really the consequence is not even held in these verses. It will continue to follow David through the rest of his life. But here we see the beginning of it. The wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. So first, one of the consequences is a broken family. She mourned for her husband. But when her mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house. And she became his wife and bore him a son. And I would submit to you that here there's a ruined reputation as well. Because I know for a fact that there were others. There's a someone in verse 3. And there's they in other verses. There are people in the palace who know exactly what has gone on. And they see this king do this. Not only that, but Joab fully aware now of what is going on. David seeking so desperately to hide his sin. Yet it's loudly proclaimed through the palace. People know. People remember that evening. As a servant went and grabbed her and brought her back. And she bore him a son. And perhaps this is the most upsetting consequence. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. In case case you are not clear working your way through this chapter, this is not who God is. This is not something that God condones. He is a holy God. Set apart from sin. This sin will come to define and to haunt much of the rest of David's life. And if it had not become clear up to this point, it becomes abundantly clear here that David is a flawed man. He is a sinner to his core. David is not our hope. David is not the hope of Israel. In fact, the disappointment of 2 Samuel 11 should turn our eyes forward to look to a greater son that was promised in 2 Samuel 7, who will come from the line of this sinful king by the grace of God. Greater son that we come to know as Jesus Christ. I think as we look at 2 Samuel 7 and we, we, we or 2 Samuel 11 and, and we Marvel, but in a, in a sad, in a disappointed, in a shocked sense at what David has done and the depths of his sin. It should turn our eyes inward to look at our own hearts. To cry out with Paul, O wretched man that I am, I am the, the least Deserving, I am the greatest of sinners. As I mentioned before, 2 Samuel 11, David's great sin, it doesn't begin in the bedroom. It doesn't begin with murder. 
It begins because he's not where he needs to be. It begins because he looks and he lusts. Maybe this evening, or as you think about the sin of David, you, you think, well, I, would, I wouldn't do that. But that's the whole point, is that it doesn't start there. It starts at being in the wrong place. It starts at thinking the wrong thing. It starts at looking at the wrong thing. That's where it starts. And there's not one of us in this room who is not capable of every single thing that David did in this chapter. In fact, I would submit to you that this evening, under the voice of my preaching, there are people, if you think it's 2 Samuel 11 as as a progression from, from one end, just being at the wrong place at the wrong time to the other end, where now you have a murderer and an adulterer, there are people at every point probably in here. I'm not saying there's murderers. But there are people who have taken their sin and they've walked a long way down that road with it who are now sitting under the preaching of my, of my voice this evening and, and maybe you've been able to hide it for a long time. But brothers and sisters, know that your sin will find you out. It found David out. In fact, the one thing that he spent so much time And all of these resources digging a deeper and a deeper and a deeper hole trying to hide has become one of the things that he is most known for. Forever. Your sin will find you out. I don't think you can come to this chapter. One of the points of this chapter is the pervasiveness of sin, not just out there, but in me, in my heart. And not just the pervasiveness of it, but the the utter devastation of it. Sin, when fully formed, leads to death, the Bible tells us. So how should we repent? Or how should we respond? By repenting. By looking to a passage like Romans 5, 8, and 9 and seeing that through this greater son who will come through David, Jesus Christ, that there is salvation. Because even when I was yet a sinner, no matter where you are in 2 Samuel 11, whether you're at the beginning or whether you're all the way at the end, far down that road, anywhere in there, anywhere you are this evening, there is forgiveness in Jesus Christ. Because when I was yet a sinner, that's when he died for me. Jesus didn't wait till you got your life together and then say, okay, now now that that you're pretty good and you're far enough on the road, now you can come to me, now that you have your sins under control. the, The amazing grace of God is that when I was in the depths of my sin, when I was an enemy and a rebel against God, at that point, that's when he died for me. So brothers and sisters, take sin seriously. And whether this evening you're just thinking the wrong thoughts or looking at the wrong things, or whether you are far down that road and you are acting on it, wherever you are, won't you repent this evening? Because your sin will find you out. Thomas Watson, 
And his book on repentance has this quote. He says, many are now in hell that purposed to repent. Take some time to think over that quote this evening. Many are now in hell that purposed to repent. They knew they were wrong. They had every intent in their heart to repent. But later, down the road, and they're in hell today. John Owen famously said, be killing sin or it will be killing you. Brothers and sisters, a passage like 2 Samuel 11 should should not cause us to just marvel at the depths of David's sinfulness. It should cause us to marvel uh, in a bad way at the devastation of the sin that is in me. The problem's not out there. The problem's in me. I am a sinner. I need a savior. And whether you this evening need to call on Jesus Christ for the first time and confess your sins and place your faith in his finished work who died for you, whether you need to do that for the first time this evening and be saved, or maybe you've been saved for 20, 30, 40 years, but maybe you've allowed unrepentant sin to creep into your life, and this evening you too need to repent. Would you come to your Savior? Would you confess your sin? Won't you keep trusting in his finished work? Lay your sins down before him. Rejoice in the hope of the gospel. In fact, we're going to do that in just a minute. We're going to come to this table together. And as we come to the Lord's table... What is it that 2 Samuel, 1 Corinthians 11 tells us that we're doing? Are we not looking back and remembering the finished work of Jesus Christ? We don't come to this table because we think that we're righteous enough, because we think, I deserve to be here. We come to this table because we know we don't deserve to be here. But we're here by grace alone. We're looking back to the cross where Jesus' body was torn for me, where his blood was spilt for me, and rejoice in that same blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel, as Hebrews tells us. And then we look forward in hope. As 1 Corinthians eleven twenty six tells us, as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death that he died for me, And you proclaim that and you keep proclaiming it and you keep believing it knowing that he is coming again. So won't you proclaim that this evening? And maybe proclaiming that this evening before you come to this table looks like coming to the front and bowing and confessing your sin or bowing at your seat. Maybe it looks like dealing with that before you come to this table to proclaim your hope in Christ. Be killing sin, or we'll be killing you. It's the message of 2 Samuel 11. Take sin seriously. And turn in faith to the greater David, to Jesus Christ. Trust in his finished work. As we transition to communion, we're going to sing, Just As I Am.